welcome to the Practice Podcast, conversations probing the nature of practice. I'm your host, Dave Fearon, co-author with Peter Vale of the digital book on practice as a way of being. Find it at mylibrary.world. And now to our show. Well, those of you who listen to my episodes over the last couple of years may have figured out that I grew up in Maine, maybe by my occasional lapse into a Maine accent, but my constant referring to stories of my day in Maine. Uh, and so, of course, I was very attracted to David Hutchins' LinkedIn posts because he is a storytelling guru. <laughs> He's made a, a study of storytelling in terms of its impact on organizations of people as well as individuals. And he, um, he gets it. He gets how the theory practice gap needs to be closed. We have to know what's important to the practitioner before they'll read our article, read our book, listen to our podcast. We have to be addressing their realities and possibilities. And David Hutchins knows that as a consultant and author and a really nice person. I really want to know more about David and I want to know it with him in future conversations. So stay tuned. There may be another David Hutchins episode coming soon to your listening device. Here's David Hutchins. <laughs> Folks, uh, David Hutchins and I had a, uh, a get acquainted few minutes before I started recording it. And we got into it so fast about storytelling and his story and my story and how uh, we are appearing on LinkedIn. Uh, that uh, he said, are we recording yet? And I said, oh, geez, I think we better. <laughs> we got some good so stuff. Good. It was great content, yes. <laughs> we got some good stuff here. Uh, you will uh, learn when you look at David's uh, profile that he has a, uh, I would say, a commercial interest in storytelling and not as, as would Mark Twain who wanted to sell books, but he is having people actually uh, pay him to help them understand the story writ large and how to present their story, either individual or even as a company, uh, so that others will be attracted. Is that sort of the gist of the commercial aspect of your work, David? So when I talk to leaders and groups and organizations about the story skill, we always start with, with outcomes. And so you just named one to, to attract people to something. Right. Um, that can be one reason to tell stories. You can tell stories to influence if you want to change behavior. You can tell stories for learning transfer. Um, you know, if, if we look at our experience, you and I are just doing this. We're sharing. We just did it. <laughs> you through the stories that we tell. This is the, the campfire construct that's 100,000 years old that's now coming back into organizations. We can talk about story for healing and making systems whole again. We can talk about marketing and culture and identity and belonging. So there's lots and lots of applications for this capability. 
what were you like before you had this insight to storytelling? There had to be a David Hutchins before you became uh, a storytelling guru. And I said that, you didn't. <laughs> uh, was it early in life that the story started to take over your consciousness? <laughs> yes, I, I started writing science fiction stories when when I was a kid. And uh -huh. getting attention for my writing even in grade school and i remember getting some some recognition and some applause around that and so you know when that happens when you're a kid that helps form your identity so i was like "Ooh, this feels good this i'm gonna do this, good. this yeah and, and then i i went to uh ut austin university of texas in austin texas to study uh journalism at the Onkite mm. school of journalism and while i was there i found advertising and I thought, ooh, I think I can be good at this. So I actually started my career as an advertising copywriter, copywriter working at big ad agencies. And marketers already know about this. The marketers have known this for a long time, right? I, I learned early in my career, if I tell a story, people will buy more Coca-Cola. Mm -hmm. And so now, you know, I'm, I'm no longer, I got tired of writing about things I didn't care about. I didn't want to write about hamburgers and Coca-Cola anymore. I wanted to write about innovation and leadership. Uh -huh. it's still the same idea. How do we move ideas through organizational systems? And what's the role that story has in that? Yeah. That's, that's, uh, now, uh, you remember the moment? There is always a moment where you thought, okay, I'm not going to sell these, uh, these products, uh, there's something about what goes on in organization life that really matters a lot. And it doesn't seem to be getting through either to employees or to customers or someone, because that's the way I hear this, that saying they need stories to move things along and move people through. So do you remember how that aha came to you? I actually do. You're right, there was a moment. Um, there's several moments, but the, the, the big one is back in the 90s that I was living in Atlanta. I live in Nashville, Tennessee now. But when I was living in Atlanta, um, working freelance as a, a writer and corporate communications guy, I wanted to connect with the Coca-Cola company. And uh, I finally got a call from them one day and they said, hey, Dave, we you were recommended to us. We, we need your help. We have a challenge. So I went and talked to them. They said, here's the challenge. Uh, Coca-Cola in the 90s was uh, had committed to this transformation journey to become what was known as a learning organization. That's right. I remember. Peter Singe in the fifth discipline was a bestseller right. for like yeah. 10 years. And, and so they said, you know, early in this journey, it was going to be a system-wide transformation. And they said, we're stuck. And the reason we're stuck is no one here understands what we're talking about when it's going to be a learning organization. And of yeah. course, if you've read the, the the fifth discipline, you know it's kind of kind of dense and academic for some people. You know, systems mm -hmm. theory and mental models. Um, and they said, "Can you create a communication solution that will help people at Coke understand what it means to be a learning organization?" And I was like, "Oh, of course I can do that." And I went because <laughs> I had no idea how to do that. Um, and I ended up I, I wrote a story, this silly story about a flock of sheep. Uh, that outwits a pack of hungry wolves. And in the process, they display the characteristics of organizational learning. And, and I had a friend who was a, a, 
a children's book illustrator. And I called him. I said, hey, Bobby, can you draw me some funny pictures of, of sheep and wolves? And I dropped these into the manuscript, and I called it Out Learning the Wolves, Surviving and Thriving in a Learning Organization. And love that it, book, love it. well, it went on to be, you know, I thought it was going to get me fired from Coca-Cola. It was so weird. And it ended up getting picked up by a publisher. And this was in, back in the 90s. Today, that, that book is still selling. It sold like a quarter million copies. It's it's in 12 languages. And I, <laughs> I fell in. It was an accident. You know, I'm, the best ideas come when we're solving a problem for a client, right? I, I was just trying to solve a problem. And that, that was the moment that made me say, all right, why did that work? What just happened here? You know, because I started getting... I started hearing these stories of, you know, the, the chief of police in Singapore put on a puppet show with wolves and, and sheep to, to bring organizational learning. Caterpillar Financial here in the U.S. put on a whole stage production of Outlearning the Wolves. What is going on here? What that has created this engagement? And so that was really the moment where I said, I'm going to really focus on this. I used to do this in advertising. This seems to be really helpful for moving ideas forward. And so yes. I've spent the last 20, 20 years exploring this idea. Do you think that the uh, Coca-Cola employee, you know, in, in Akron, Ohio, maybe has a team of four trucks that distribute whatever, until he or she could get it, what this transformation thing was. It was just one more set of clouds fly, passing over, you know, the top of the work. But when you brought it into the sheep-wolf analogy, he got it. Exactly. And, and when we say he got it, not just intellectually, but he, the, the driver felt it as well. Yeah. And, you know, that, I mean, the, the story was funny. It had really snarky, sarcastic humor in it and made people laugh. Um, some of the sheep die in it. And so there, there's some moments where you go, Ew, right? And, and all of that is really relevant to the connection that it made. And so part of the conversation is what is the role of emotion? And yeah. since what's the role of emotion in how organizational systems get stuck and how they move forward? And if, as a leader, if we're not recognizing the emotional currents that run through the system, we're we're missing where change happens, and we're missing where people get stuck and unstuck. And we need this lever, this language that is story, to address the emotional system. Uh, it's all, as you said earlier, it's always worked. I mean, from you know, from the uh, the cave on, in Kent, you move people by uh, basically telling their story as a future. That's, some, that's one way of saying, you know, if we leave this cave, because <laughs> I've been out there and there's a there's, there's something out there and uh, they go, but if you say, you know, I was out of the cave and guess what? I saw all of us out there and we were frolicking in, in, in clean water and the food was dropping out of the sky. And then, you know, it sounds like a fake story, but in a way you're helping them see their future. And uh, I imagine almost every successful uh, ethical politician uh, does that. Just saying, yeah. this is a story of your future.
the unethical politicians do it as well. By the way. <laughs> I, I have to take a quick uh, self-serving moment here, D David, because in the 90s, you wrote a wrote this book and it had tremendous impact for organization learning and development within a major corporation and spread out all the way to across the world. At the very same time, Professor David Furon and Professor Steve Cavallari <laughs> wrote this huge book called Managing in Organizations that Learn in the same time. <laughs> I want look, that. I mean, look, look, oh my God, look at all the pages. To say something that you said probably in 25 well-illustrated pages. And, and this is a Blackwell Oxford University publication. We thought it was going to uh, go all over the world. Now, frankly, these aren't all our words. These are, we edited it, and there are some of the chapters we wrote. Very nice people, some of whom are, I still maintain friendships with, as I do with Steve Cavallari. But there it was. All those pages, and we didn't make one tiny ripple in any corporation that we could ever know, in part because we were academic about it. Uh, and, and this was written for the layman. This wasn't written to each other. Written exactly the same time as Senge. In fact, Steve uh, studied at MIT with Senge. So he kind of knew his system stuff and all that. So we said, all right, we, we got smart. 20, you know, 10 years later in 2005, as we said, we're going to write the Who Moved My Cheese book. And because that person is now sitting in Ohio, Hawaii with a mansion and raking it in. Right. <laughs> and then said, well, how can we take something that we care about, which is in this case, uh, the quality of, of, of knowledge that is fully owned and operated by the individual learner? How can we get uh, this? penetrate this idea that knowledge is very important and is conti continually uh, upgradable. The quality of knowledge can be improved if the person intends to do it. And Steve said, well, that's pragmatism. That's purse American pragmatism. Great. Got it. I said, well, what? how can we do a, a simple story that gets that across? And uh, Steve kind of shook. And I said, well, all right, I'll work on the story you work on. Well, I worked on the story, but it came out 278 pages later <laughs> called Inside Knowledge, Rediscovering the, the Source of Performance Improvement. It was a wonderful, you know, I, I, I created a novel, I created a main character, I had a mystery, I had all, all kind of stuff, but it took 278 pages. And this book didn't sell me <laughs> So... This ends this conversation. I'm totally jealous of you, and I don't want to know. It. <laughs> In fact, I'm. We're going. My editor is looking at re, re essentially uh, refurbishing the book for today, and uh, okay. we'll, we'll publish it digitally, like my current book is. But anyway, well, if I can, so you're you're being humble and self-deprecating and uh, about it, and. Um, there, I think there's there's great value to what you and your your co-authors did. I mean, breaking it down and going into the nuance and you know the 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 world needs the the map makers, the people who go out and say, let me chart this new field, let me describe what I'm seeing, let me capture this with with integrity and get it right. 
And yeah, the, those messages don't sell as much. You know, you, what you need next is the torch bearer, somebody to 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 shine a light and say, "Hey, everybody, looky over here." Um, and that's and right. You didn't have as much success on that, but there's great value is in coming in with this with an academic and intellectual rigor, so that people like me, you know, I'm I'm a bridge guy. You know, I'm I'm not as smart as you. I I don't know how to write the academic tome. But what wow. I do know how to do is read that or the fifth discipline and say, I see some essence here. Yeah. Let me bring this forward. You know, it's it's the advertising guy. I'm I'm just a copywriter, ultimately, you know? Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I professionally hung out with the the, uh, the writers of the research. And uh, and I agree with you that we we honor and hopefully to this day rigor in all of that. I represent the work of Peter Vale, who was my mentor during my doctoral program and over 50 years time, worked very hard to get his story out to us management educators and the gist of his story, which I'm still trying to tell five, four years after he passed away is practice matters. And if you want to help someone reach theory, you have to understand what practice is like for them. And then you knit it together. So all people in any practitioner are not equal in any way, except, you know, in the under law and in the eyes of God. But basically, everyone has these wonderful distinctive qualities that they brought together, which is why we call it a way of being. And if you're an educator, a trainer, as you are a writer, and you really want that guy we talked about driving the Coke truck up in the Coca-Cola truck up in Akron to perk up and listen, find out something about him that he's very proud of and that matters a lot to him and wants, if anything, to make it better. And if you can align the theory to that, he'll grab it and he'll take it into life. If that doesn't happen, it stays on the dusty old shelf. And here's the sad part about the dusty old shelf analogy, Dave, David. In my library at Central Connecticut State University used to be all stacks with a, you know, a meeting place in the middle in the lobby. But basically it was stacks and stacks and stacks of books. And our job as academic writers was to write a book that would reach some stacks all over the country, as many of Peter's, all of Peter's books did. They're on the stacks. Great. You walk into my library today, 2024, they had to repurpose about a, more than a third of that space and take the books that were never, ever checked out out and it's all moving toward digital. Ta-da! My book with Peter Vale is digital. Now I need someone like you though to get people to understand that if they if 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 you can't hold it in your hand and turn the pages, that it's not a book. It is a book, it's digital, not a Kindle book, it's digital. You can bring it up on your phone, you can read it on your computer. And not only that, but the cool thing about what I could do in the digital book 
is every single conjecture about practice that we 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 crafted. We have a string of links to a whole video, to an episode of the podcast, to one of Peter's papers. You get that for thirty nine bucks. You get an entire sort of a immersion yep. into what practice means to us that and how it could help you. I can't sell the damn thing. <laughs> so after this call, <laughs> I, I do every day try to tell the stories, though. I really, every day, I have something on LinkedIn, Facebook, Facebook other places that, that, like, for example, featuring each person in each podcast. I tell, I'll tell your story a little bit, a little, I'll pick out a few quotes from our conversation. Yeah. Uh, I'll and I'll link it to a conjecture in our book because it's inevitable that I can find something someone says that goes right to the heart of something that Peter and I wrote. And I say, okay, you want to read more? Here's a link to the it book. It is. Yeah. <laughs> I still am not selling book. I think I, I think I got to change my name to David Hutchins. <laughs> well, <laughs> what you described is is exactly the the process of theory in practice. For for theory, we we need the the theorists. We need the the map makers who who can chart the territory, and then the practice part is an invitation. You say to the truck driver, "Tell me your experience. What does this look like in your world?" And then you bring that forward, and now you're inviting the world into this conversation that you're having. So. So after we after we present the theory, we become hosts. We become storytellers, where we start saying, "Here's what this can look like," and then you start inviting your audience. What does this look like for you? Yeah, let's talk about that. Yeah. Right and now, it's now it's a dialogue. Yeah. Um, and I'll add to what you were saying. You know, you, you've got the book online, and you know it's searchable, and you can link to videos. The other thing that is happening now, like it or not, is Artificial intelligence is combing through your book. Ah! <laughs> yeah, it's, it's happening. And when someone asks a story or asks a question about learning in organizations, yeah. your words are feeding into that conversation in ways wow. that you, you can't even track now. No. Uh, I, I had a friend who, who does story work who, who tested artificial intelligence. He's written books about stories. And so he said to uh, artificial intelligence, tell me a story about... I forgot what it was something specific because he had written this story in one of his books, like a leader who took a left turn when he could have taken a right turn and it changed everything. And artificial intelligence spit back a story. And my friend looked at my friend Paul looked at this and said, Wow, that's pretty good. In fact, that story sounds a lot like the story I put in my book. And then when he compared it, he said, Holy crap, artificial intelligence ripped the story out of my book to answer my question. So there it I is. You can't get more incestuous than that. You know, that's really that's that's really something. And in and you're right, David. That is a trend that's that's rippling through all of us who are the uh, theorists and the and the teachers. Uh, it's coming through real fast. Every conference that I've looked at in my field of management education is like. AI, 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 AI. Okay, right. that's it. All right, it's truth. And then I had a great podcast conversation with a gentleman named Gary Lloyd over in London, who's close to my age. And uh, 
he's been watching and, and participating in organization change his whole career. And he said, in this lovely accent, on which I cannot duplicate, he said, you know, you really ought to spend some time becoming acquainted with artificial intelligence. And I said, I spent my whole career working on real intelligence, my own and others. <laughs> you know, what's the artificial? He says, no, it's, it's not all bad. I said, yeah, well, next to me, I'm picturing artificial intelligence. Okay, great. It's a, a wonderful, nice, loving little character who looks up at me with adoring eyes and says, Master, tell me what else you need me to do. And then I look at it a second time with new eyes, and it's a, it's a horrible monster with dripping blood, blood dripping teeth who wants to eat me. And, and he and he said, "Oh, yes, it's it's both. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> a cool like a The eating part is your friend, and it'll gobble up my book and and not even burp, but." Uh, isn't it ironic? I, mean, I know I'm drifting us here a little bit, but the president of the of Harvard University chose to step down or was forced to step down. Not, yes, for her comments, you know, she was bagged in the uh, at Congress and all that. They claimed that she plagiarized some of her research. Oh my God, plagiarizing! Get rid of her. AI plagiarize, that's it. It's a plagiarization tool. It'll it'll suck everything out that anyone said with absolutely no credit intended. And uh, poets and writers and storytellers, beware. You know, I on LinkedIn, uh, there's a guy who follows me who always comments on my stuff. And, and finally, I said to him, I love your comments. You always say something so rich and meaningful. And I always stop and think about, it. I look forward to your comments. And he said, oh, I've been using artificial intelligence to create those comments. And I felt cheated. cheated. I, it's almost like a, a guy who lies to the girl. So she'll go out with them, you know, like, yeah. Yeah. I'm like, that wasn't really you. Crap, man. You know, was it really, you. That's a that's an important line, David. Was it really, was it really you? Because now I'm going to back to your work and your practice. Mm -hmm. You're advocating that we uh, know ourselves with enough confidence that we can place our authentic self, to the extent that's possible in this world, in front of others and take our chances that they'll still want to date us. Instead of, you know, all the costuming and disguises and so forth that we can acquire in order to make people think we're something that we really probably are not. So this is the time, if ever, for us to be able to tell our authentic story, unvarnished, if you will. How do you get people to do that, if you do at all? Well, I'll I'll tell you the, the the conversation I'm I'm having with my my partners and stakeholders and markets, you know, is about storytelling. But I'm I'm expanding that that language, and because really all along, even though I haven't been using this word, it's about bringing more humanity to organizations and more humanity to leadership. And I'm even seeing this language emerge right now. People are talking about the humanization 
of leadership. You know, Corn Ferry's workplace report came out last year. They said this is the year of the human, right? And so it's it's in this it's an interesting dialogue that's emerging, and it, it does connect to artificial intelligence. Oh yeah, this AI comes in and takes over all the stuff people used to do. What are people for? Human humanity, being human, <laughs> humanness. Right. <laughs> right. And so now what the hell is that? Yeah. So the story conversation becomes even more important than ever before. You know, my yeah. clients started with, oh, if I tell stories, can I sell more? Yeah. <laughs> There's more to it than that. It's about bringing more of ourselves, more of our authenticity and our, our, our humanity to the organization. And that's becoming more important than ever before. And what does that look like? And let's explore how do we exercise that? And so that's what I'm writing about and thinking about right now. Oh, I think it's great. And you can do that probably in story form. That's what I'm doing. Because I, my sense of it is, and I've always been fascinated with stories and storytelling, is that it's a, uh, it's it's probably what does make us more human than any other creature, uh, any other creature on earth. It's our ability to, to have a story to tell from heart and, and mind on tap instantly and to also be aware that we are creating a story with our behavior so the story is uh so tightly woven with our humanity i can't imagine a better way to bring the value of real humanness out to the truck driver in akron than through stories so in a way you've got the trend that you're on right now, I celebrate the hell out of. I think absolutely, finally, someone is talking about humans. Except, remember, they, we called it human resource development, HRD. Yeah. It wasn't about human res It wasn't about human development. It was about developing ways to, to acquire humans. The word resource is the problem. And get them to do their job as resources, right. Resources and the, the development problem. part was incidental. Yeah. Uh, so I, I don't want to put them all down because I know some of them actually hire consultants still called vice president of human development. But I always, even when I was speaking with a vice president of human development in a corporate setting, and we have plenty of them around us here in Hartford, I would say, hmm, uh, is there any other officer in this company who stands for humans then? Hmm? What do you mean? Oh, you got your technology office, you got your chief financial officer. So you're the humans, and the rest stand for something else. <laughs> you know, see what a see what a pain in the ass I was. And that's why I didn't have a, I didn't make money as a consultant either. You know, like <laughs> well, thank you. See you later. The point was, as Peter Vale said many times, and in in our uh in our uh episodes that we were able to record together, he said in a business school. Every subject is about humans, not just organization behavior, which is what we represented. Every subject, accounting, marketing, marketing, all of it. It's about humans. It's it, accounting. I said, well, accounting's, you know, bottom line. It's, it's, no, he said, where the where do the where do the numbers come from? Human endeavor. Where are they going? Into investing in human endeavor. So it's human, human, human. And everyone needs to know how to uh, communicate with each other. Back to you. Uh, as you're seeing this trend, and I'm, I hope it's true, 
Where does this take you next, Dave? David. So I'm still bringing the story skill forward because I, you know, story isn't the only path to opening up humanity in the organization. I I think it might be the fastest path to doing that. It might might be the most intuitive, but it's it's not the only way forward. You know, but before you hit record on this podcast, you know, you're you're telling me stories about your father, and I was really moved by what you said. And then during while we've been talking, you you talked about the books that you worked hard on that are gathering dust on the shelf and you dust on the shelf. And I felt the disappointment. I I felt the emotions that you were describing. So like you and I are friends now based on this conversation, you know? Um, And and so story is this really powerful way to do this. It's it's not the only way I'll tell you uh, that the thing I'm looking at right now is, and, and that I'm intrigued by is the idea of, love as a leadership capability and where that comes from is there's there's a chilean bioethicist umberto maturana who talks oh, he yeah, talks about sure. you know him he talks about cognition and biological systems but he yeah. has this killer quote where he says love is the only emotion that increases the intelligence of the system well there it is right there and if i've been one out artificial the out of if we want out human the artificial intelligence there you have it right there so what is that i'll love it yeah what's the mechanism for that what's the behaviors what does that look like how how do we talk about this this weird idea of love in business i there's not a big appetite my clients aren't begging me for this conversation (laughs) no one's asking but it is what i'm thinking about yeah no it makes a lot of sense i i i do Fortunately, because of Zoom, we get involved in quite a few uh, organized conversations, uh, largely in the group of us who are interested in humans and organizations. So that's my community. And uh, I have heard the word love coming up more and more. It's like rising up. And uh, of course, we have to parse it. You know, we being Western thinkers, we have to say, oh, you mean agape versus romantic love? And we get through that and we say okay now have we taken love and reduced it into something that can be commoditized is that what our objective is here so we can can sell a package of love to a company (laughs) no no in fact i will tell a very quick story even though i'm watching my clock here uh edgar shine i don't know if you've heard of him work you know, part of the MIT group with Peter Senge was one of his acolytes. And Edgar Sine was well into his 90s. And uh, there was a uh, an organization development uh, open source OD that that hosted uh, a learning session with Edgar Shine not too long ago. Uh, and they took one of his cases and they dramatized it. And then they invited people to, with Ed Shine there, uh, to kind of like, what would the consultant do at this moment? Well, choose A or B. Okay, they choose B, that kind of thinking. Anyway, Ed participated, he sat through it. I could see him just as I'm seeing you on this screen. And at the end, uh, he said a few things. And then, uh, since there are only about six of us, so uh, Bill Blendell, who hosted it, said, well, why don't we just go around and with final thoughts, you know how you do that. And each person did. And and then I, it came to me and, and I I said, 
uh, I went to Peter Vale uh, when I was asked by a hospital if I would come in and help as a consultant. And uh, I said, Peter, what? I, I haven't done any of that sort of work. But what should I do? And he says, not what you do, it's what you believe. If you can love the organization, then do it. Otherwise, if you can only see the mechanics and the systems and all of that, you probably are looking at the, what's causing the problem. But if you don't care, you're not going to solve it. Love the organization, love the people. So we got to Ed. It was his last comment. And he said, well, I will just uh, endorse what David said that Peter Vale said. Love. That was it. I mean, this is the guy who's written how many books and articles and everything else. The next day, he was out with his son talking to a potential client, came home for a nap, and died. At 95, his last day on earth, he was doing what he loved. He was probably trying to size up that organization through its meeting its leaders if he could care about them enough to give his precious time or in his reputation, went home for a nap and never woke up. But his last, his last public teaching was love. So you, sir, are on the right track. <laughs> and you look a lot younger than I am. So you have the future to make sure some of that gets in uh, to the, uh, core of people who are teaching and training, consulting and taking theory and helping people put it into their lives because it's a wonderful gift that we get to give. Uh, and it's basically an expression of love. Uh, the rest of it does get dusty on shelves. But if you ever knew Peter Vale and spent even a half an hour in a conversation with him, you would feel welcome, you would feel acknowledged, and you'd feel like you gained something. I feel that way about you. I didn't think I was going to do this much talking in our time, so we got to have another one where I just say, and here's Dave, David Hutchins. For the next 30 minutes, you talk. But uh, you, you ignited a lot in me with this conversation. I, I, if we did do another one, I would feel like my role is just to prompt you to share from your wisdom and experience. And I, I don't even want to add to what you just said. You, the, the gift has been you and this podcast and this conversation. Um, I can't think of anything better that's, that I'm going to experience today. So thank you. Well, you certainly made my day, and, and I will keep doing this work until I can't either. I, I hopefully, I will just lay down for a nap someday myself. In the meantime, I'm staying at it with your encouragement. Thank you, David. Thank you, Dave Fearon. Thank you for listening to the Practice Podcast. Conversations Probing the Nature of Practice. If you'd like to hear more, go to Automatic, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or YouTube. 
and please consider purchasing our book on practice as a way of being at mylibrary.world. It's a digital book with lots of features that you do not see in a conventional book. So once again, thank you, and I look forward to you listening again. Oh, and one more thing. Please check out our webpage at inactionresearch.info.